This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu for more information. While discussion at the recent Aaron Anderson B2B Research Conference at Wharton was focused on cutting-edge research in the field of business-to-business relationships, participants also acknowledged the impact on marketers of the ongoing financial meltdown. Along those lines, three university professors and a moderator who attended the event took part in a panel that analyzed the impact of the economic downturn on the B2B global marketplace. The conference, sponsored by the Wharton INSEAD Alliance, was held in honor of Aaron Anderson, a marketing professor at Wharton from 1981 to 1994, and at INSEAD from 1994 until her death in 2007. All right, hello. I'm Adam Fine from Pembroke Consulting, and I'm here with some of the luminaries in the business-to-business world to talk a little about what's been going on in the economy, what's been going on in the markets, and what it means for business-to-business executives. I'm really pleased and honored to be with this group, and I'm going to let them each introduce themselves. Yeah, I'm Gary Lillian, a professor at Penn State and the research director of Penn State's Institute for the Study of Business Markets. Pete Fader, professor of marketing at the Wharton School. And Bart White's a professor of marketing at the University of Florida. Well, great. Well, thanks very much, gentlemen, and thanks for taking the time to do this. Uh, I'm really glad to be back here and talking to you all. Obviously, one of the things that I know is on every executive's mind that I talk about is where things are going in the economy. We are uh, in for what looks like a very rough economic time. It looks like uh, the economy is going to be technically in a recession for the next few quarters. Uh, But this happens frequently. We have cyclical economic downturns. How should the business-to-business marketing mix change as we go into this economic downturn, and how should executives start to prepare as we maybe get out of that downturn sometime late next year in 2010? Okay, well, I'll take take a a, a crack at that. Um, Everybody's looking for a single answer to a question that actually has multiple answers. Um, And in a, we actually did some research on a topic related to this, which is uh, should firms increase spending during a recession? Um, and the answer to that, again, was sort of it, it does depend. And the firms who have what I call the skill, the will, and the till should, in fact, increase their spending and focus on acquiring new customers while retaining existing customers. The skill means they've got marketing expertise the will means they have a culture to go against what seems to be a uh, sort of a tough trend. And the till means that they've got some resources to be able to, uh, to invest. And the analogy is the best, the best athletes often attack at the t- toughest times on a hill. Now, what if you don't have those assets? Now is a time, if you will to be focused on your core customers and to retain existing customers. So I guess I see diverse sets of strategies depending upon uh, the, the, um, the expertise and the resources of the firms. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I think even we can see uh, what's been going on in the market, even in the financial market. Those banks that are not very exposed to some of these troubled credit markets Absolutely. have some assets and are acquiring, and those uh, that aren't are being acquired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on this? strategies for a recession? Well, one thing I like to do is to avoid excessive generalities. It's interesting how we just take it as truth that we are entering a recession and that's going to go across the board and and affect all sectors the same way. It's interesting that when uh, when, when times are good, we don't know that the good times are going to continue. We know that the bottom is going to fall out at some point. So 
it, it becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy if, if we start uh, battening down the hatches and so on. There are growth opportunities out there. There's certainly some sectors that uh, that will continue to do well. Will will do even better. Uh, you know, uh, Google just announced uh, just, uh, some really good financial results, and there's there's plenty of others out there. So I think we just have to be careful and, and maybe want to uh, uh, cater our answers or our strategies mm-hmm. uh, depending on exactly which sector we're in. But this actually goes back to what Gary said: is that uh, peop- that companies that are in the uh, sectors that are growing uh, aren't going to be as effective, and ones that that are in sectors that are in trouble need to sort of batten down the hatches a bit more and be very selective in terms of where they make the investments. You know, an ana- another analogy to this is if you look at the consumer market, I mean, maybe this is bad times for some people, but some people have money, and this is a great time to buy a car or buy a new house because you get it for pretty low price. Yeah, that's true. I guess uh, the entire podcast should be labeled Your Mileage May Vary, mm-hmm. if the car analogy. Good, good, good. But, but to pick up on that point, Pete, I mean, speaking of markets, if we look back uh, over the last five years – Actually, exports have been a real bright spot for the U.S. economy and for business-to-business marketers. I went back, and by my calculations, exports have jumped from about 6% of GDP to about 9.5% of GDP. And actually, without exports, we would technically be in a recession, as the uh, economists would officially define it. And I went back and looked, and, and we're exports growing, things like excavating machinery, electrical equipment, drilling and oil field equipment. Uh, core technology products that are all being sold into business-to-business markets overseas. And I'm wondering is, uh, you know, a lot of the companies that are going to be listening to this are here based in the U.S., some are going to be around the world. How can U.S.-based companies best take advantage of some of these global B2B opportunities? And then kind of the question in reverse, how can some of our global listeners think about their strategies vis-a-vis the U.S.? You know, I, I've thought about this quite a bit, and one of the things that um, one of the things that has driven the the export business for the B two B firms that I'm familiar with has been the um, is, is, has been the fluctuations in currency. Mm. Um, and for example, if one of the outputs of this, you know, we've been talking about the quarter, the recession business, but if one of the outputs of this is, for example, um, a uh, um, some fluctuations in the values of currency in China, for example, I think we're going to see some of the rules of the game change. Um, it, it, I think the the answer to this is once again, as we said before, it depends. Um, and if you've got a scenario where you think that you're still going to have a competitive advantage in a particular uh, in a particular sector in a particular region, you know, as the as the economy sort of um, flows out, uh, then, then you know, you should be prepared to invest there. And my sense here is that we don't know what's going to happen. Hedge your bets. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, the dollar has dropped about 45% in the last six years. The mm-hmm. U.S. has become a low-cost source of manufacturing Absolutely. for a lot of B2B companies. So, uh, you know, I don't think any of us can predict the currency markets for sure. Well, uh, you know, I, th- I think China is going to be a much better customer for us in the future than it has been in the past. Okay, Interesting. What makes you say that, Gary? Well, as their, uh, you know, as their, as their currency uh, rises, they're going to be able to buy an awful lot more of that heavy equipment that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they're building up their infrastructure, sure. What else? Well, also in China, their, their labor costs are starting to increase now, too. And so, you know, they're being threatened by lower-cost labor that you might get in places like Vietnam. But, you know, what, what you don't want to do in this particular – when – as the economy turns down, is you don't want to sort of spread your resources too thin. 
So you just don't want to sort of enter any export market or put you want to emphasize your uh, investments behind ex- export markets where you really are, are doing well and have a competitive advantage, have a good way of entering the market or a good way of building on some uh, assets that you've already built in the market. Yeah, maybe maybe let me add one thing. Uh, because I spoke to a um, a CMO of one of the ISBM member companies, and he said something I thought was really very wise. He said he said, "Listen to what your customers are not telling you." Okay, okay what does that mean? Um, I had to ask him that, um, and I and he said, like he said, for example, they had a very high value offering for one of their top customers, very high value. They're also in the mining machinery business, very high value offering. According to all their calculations, this customer should have bought. Okay. And the customer said, we love your product. They didn't buy it. And after they debriefed, they realized that, that they both recognized the right thing. The customer should have buy it, bought it, but they didn't have the cash. So what they needed was the financing. They needed to change the nature of the, He said, if we had known up front that they needed financing in order to get our product, then, uh, then we would have gone in with a different offer. So I think that what you're going to see in this, in this recession, if you will, is very dramatic change in customer needs. So pay very close attention to what your customers are not telling you. Uh, and which, uh, to, to take a tangent off of Gary's point, is to talk about just the, the role of, of listening to customers, the, the role of marketing research, the role of, of, of marketing metrics and analytics. It's interesting that, that those are, are seen as, as one of the first things that we can cut. Times are tough. We don't need to worry about all that, that nice-to-know stuff. But I think a lot of those analytics, uh, which are getting increasingly sophisticated, are a great source of efficiency for, for companies that really can uh, read the market uh, and allocate their resources appropriately. And so it's a shame to see companies cut from there when that could be exactly the thing they need to do in order to weather the storm. Well, can you give us an example of a, a, best, practice met, a best practice metric from either consumer or industrial markets that we can think through? Well, it's becoming increasingly easy to track uh, customers and, and specific transactions over time. So instead of being very transactional-oriented, we just want to sell stuff now, uh, starting thinking about uh, relationships uh, with customers, something that's existed, the, the concept in B2B markets for a long time, but the ability to actually anticipate what their needs are going to be and, and, and what they're willing to pay and what other uh, offerings you want to wrap around with that particular product, uh, th- those capabilities are better than ever before. Uh, uh, companies really ought to be investing in those capabilities instead of saying we can do without that stuff until the good times come around. Mm-hmm. But to even go one to to build on that point, uh, it in in these difficult times it becomes even more important to sort of focus on the best customers that you have, the ones that you have a good long term relationship that you're going to work together on on a partnering basis, and to, to even increase the t- uh, the ties that you have with those customers, and then with the customers that you d- that aren't very profitable or you don't have a good relationship with, if you have to cut back, cut back on those customers. So that, that's the conventional wisdom. And it's, it's actually what, what Gary said earlier, just, uh, you know, when you go into defensive mode, just, just focus on the good ones. Uh, and, and, and it's hard to argue with that logic overall. But I, I believe that today, with a better ability to track and anticipate, uh, you're, you're in a better position to be able to go after some of those, those harder to reach, hard to predict customers than before. Uh, and I'm hoping that, that some companies will be willing to, to, to attempt that reach rather than just giving up on them and, and, and staying close to home. Yeah, a cautionary tale here. Um, firms are going to want to – are going to hear the market screaming for price decreases. Okay? And one of the things that we've learned over years and years and years, and we shouldn't forget what we've learned, is that it's very 
much easier to lower price than to raise price. So if you set a low price with a particular customer, when times are bad, it's going to be hell to try to bring that price back up. So again, cautionary tale, in times like this, we find we found in past recessions that firms lock themselves into pricing well below value because of the exigencies of, quote-unquote, making the numbers for that quarter. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you're all bringing up a really interesting angle uh, on, on something I hear a lot about, which is anticipation, the ability to anticipate where things are going to go, how customers are going to behave. And I guess, you know, as I look back, we're pretty much coming out on the other side of what may be considered the biggest asset and credit bubble perhaps in history. And some markets have gone through enormous booms and busts just in the last five years. And I want to give you one example of one and and use that maybe as a springboard for some conversations. Uh, One of the biggest business-to-business markets is building materials and construction. Mm. And and we look what happened. Uh, You know, residential construction was running at about $400 billion a year in 2003, spiked up to almost $700 billion a year in 2006, and today, 2008, is running at about $350 billion a year. Mm So that's basically a sharp up and a sharp down. Mm -hmm. Uh, And during that run-up, there were, I'd say, irrational exuberance about the future prospects for these industries. So, you know, how can executives anticipate behavior when they're caught up in this? How can they recognize these these booms and how can they uh, anticipate the bust and, and when's the next boom coming? I'll leave that question for another time. But let's focus on the first one. How, how can they anticipate using customer metrics what's um, going on? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I, uh, maybe uh, Pete will have a different view on this, but, but I actually feel that you probably can't anticipate it. I mean, if, you couldn't, if we, we could have anticipated some of these things, they wouldn't have happened. Some of these, these uh, you just don't know when the bubble's going to burst and when it's not. So I, I think rather than trying to anticipate it, I think the important thing is to be adaptive when it happens and to sort of recognize when it's happening and change the approach that you're taking to take it into account. Rather than I, I'm, I personally don't think it's very easy to anticipate some of these things. Well, it's certainly not easy to anticipate, but but I I think there's there's a, some chance of of being able to to go below the surface. I think too often uh, companies, uh, uh, Wall Street analysts, just look at at macro patterns, uh, the, the kinds of numbers that Adam was describing. They they look at these sharp upward curves and these sharp downward curves without really looking below and saying, how much of this were, were, were new customers just uh, uh, entering some of these markets? How much of it were repeat sales? When you start decomposing these sales patterns and understanding how much of it are, are new adopters or is it just the same group of people buying more and more and more, uh, that that becomes a bubble then. So I, I think uh, trying to get below, trying to, to, to link – uh, transactions together at a, at a customer level makes it a, a little bit more feasible uh, to try to uh, understand what's going on, although it's still a challenge to say uh, when things are going to peak and how high and, and how low will they go. Mm-hmm. But that's actually an interesting idea, Pete, because what it suggests is that during this period of run-up, it wasn't enough to just look at the total number of sales, as let's say some of the home builders did, but to actually look at what was the transactional velocity? Was it people buying to flip? Was it people buying new homes? I mean, what was going on? We were building roughly 40% more homes than sort of traditional demand was going to absorb. What was going on there? Something was happening. And I guess that individual customer metrics might have given an important clue early on. That's exactly right. In many of these cases, when you see a, a bubble expanding very rapidly, it's because there's this, this rapid adoption of people jumping in. You're always going to saturate the, the pool of people who eventually will buy this thing. The hope is that they will continue re- repeat purchasing at that same uh, crazy rate. That just can't happen. 
Uh, so, so all these things will settle down. I really think it's the very same dynamics, albeit with the different players and issues, with the, the, the dot-com bubble uh, eight years ago. Uh, so uh, we, we just don't learn from these things. We keep thinking that each one is unique. Yeah, but, every, but everybody, everybody wants to uh, uh, you know, get out of its cell at the top. And, and the question is, not, is knowing it's not going to last forever. You certainly know it's not going to last forever. But, but it's very hard to predict how long it's going to last. And so let's say you had seen all of these uh, fl- people buying houses to flip them. And maybe you got out of the market and you said, gosh, this market's going to uh, peter out after a while and we're going to have a big problem. Uh, but the question is, do you get out two years earlier before it really hits the peak and miss out all on, on all those sales? Or do you get out, uh, you know, right when it hits the top, if you can? Or do you make an adjustment after it hits the top and you realize that it's now happened? Yeah, well, you're talking about greed. Um Maybe maybe just a couple of comments to draw this back to the business to business side. You know, particularly because you were talking about the housing market, and you know, I said, "Gee, the housing market draws so much from the business to business side." In other words, mm-hmm. so the business to business side is you know it's derived demand. Okay, so your fundamental demand is going to be driven by, and you know you anticipate, I think quite rightfully so, that the increase in housing. Uh, building is not going to continue. So, what does this mean to the to the suppliers into the um, into this into this industry, the business to business firms who are going to have to react to this? Well, let's take a look at what they've done in the past. Many of these are capacity driven firms, in other words, fixed cost, high fixed cost, low variable cost firms. Um, plant utilization is a primary. You were talking about costs. Pri- uh, plant utilization is a primary um, metric for determining their cost structure. High plant utilization, low, uh, low average cost, low, uh, low average cost, and very low uh, incremental cost. So what they do and what they've done, um, and we've had we've done some research at the IASBM that take, takes a look at capacity and pricing uh, cycles, and there's herd behavior. When a bunch of lemmings think the world is going to increase, you know, is going to continue to increase, everybody adds capacity to more than meet that anticipated need. So, so again, let's suppose that we have five firms, all of whom see a 20% increase. And, and it's true. There's going to be a 20% increase in final demand. Well, they all increase capacity by 10%, so they can get more than their fair share. And then you, have an over, and then when, then you eventually have an overcapacity cycle. What happens then? Overcapacity? Now, how do you, how do you get your variable, uh, how do you get your cost down? Cut capacity. Now what you have is a squeeze. So all of a sudden, the next thing that happens is an undercapacity cycle because you have this lemmings process. Okay, bottom line on this, there's going to be an overshoot. There's going to be an undershoot. Okay, so, so if you go back to advice for what some of these firms should be doing, it's, uh, your, your inclination is going to be to cut back capacity. Don't cut as far back as your neighbors might, and you are going to recover an awful lot faster than they will. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things about business-to-business markets is that a lot of the customers of these manufacturers are distributors. That's right. And so it's interesting. The economic model for manufacturers is, uh, you know, maximize plant utilization for your economies. For a distributor, typically one of the things you want to maximize is sort of the economies of the customer relationship. You yeah. don't want to just sell one product. You want to sell a basket of products across turns, that. Turns, velocity. 
Oh, velocity. <laughs> and certainly economies of scale over that relationship. Yes. You build a relationship, you want to put a lot through that relationship. So, uh, you know, how do you think those relationships are going to be changing as we go into this economic downturn? Or anything, either manufacturers or distributors, advice you could offer to either side as you go into this downturn and how the nature of those relationships will be either stressed or possibly improved? I think there's going to be a lot of stress on these relationships. But again, I think that the relate the good relationships that you have will work together to solve these problems. And those are the ones that you ought to really put a lot of emphasis behind. So you've developed sort of partnering relationships that are very effective with some distributors or some retailers. And, uh, and you'll work together to figure out how to solve these problems. Uh, with other people who sort of might just hound you to drop your prices and and, uh, and it's just not advantageous for you to sort of uh, treat them as a partner anymore. I think there's uh, one silver lining here because uh, we keep uh, equating this to uh, a typical boom-bust cycle. And this is not a typical one because there's all the, this financial weirdness going mm-hmm. on, uh, which in some sense is, is related to the cycle but is, is exaggerating uh, the, the, the effects that we're seeing today. And if, or should I say when, the financial weirdness settles down and people are willing to, 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 to lend money and, and, and so on, uh, I don't think that the, the overall economic situation is as bad as people think. I think there's just this artificial wrench that's been thrown into the works that are keeping companies from, from spending and investing and so on. Uh, so it's not, it's not simply the usual derived demand going up and down. Mm-hmm. It, it's companies restraining themselves in a way that we just haven't seen for decades. So if confidence can be restored and the right uh, 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 financial fixes can be put in place, I think uh, th- this, this cycle will, will fix itself relatively quickly compared to, to previous ones. Hmm. I, I mean, I, I'm going to respectfully actually take a little bit of a different position there, <laughs> Pete, <laughs> because I think what we're going through now is actually uh, on the other side of a credit bubble and really pulling back credit. So banks don't have the financing. The cost of money has gone up. The cost of short-term financing for major industrial conglomerates has doubled or tripled. That's essentially the earnings per share gone because of increases in some of these short-term interest rates. So I, I, I wonder how much that lubricant of the economy, that lubricant of sales, uh, of credit, is going to start slowing down activity and, and might take a little while to build back up. And, and I do agree with you, but, but the point is it's, it's the lubricant of sales that has been changing as opposed to the, the inherent demand out there. And that, that's what makes this thing different. And th- those are, that's a really important factor and a tough thing to fix. But I think the, the, the demand is in place. And if we could figure out how to re-lubricate, uh, then, then things could get back on track. Okay. I, I, also, I also think that in a capitalist economy, I mean, you're, it, there, you're going to have some sort of survival of the fittest. And what this is going to do is it's not going to affect companies that are very successful, very well run, very well managed as much as it can affect companies that are sort of marginal. And to some extent, when you come out of this, you, maybe you'll have stripped off a lot of the fat and, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the economy and even within your own company, and you'll come out of it stronger. That's a very good point, and uh, I would I would advise companies as a way to come out of this. Now is a great time to think about the major source of innovation that we've seen over the last ten years. Everybody thinks about products. That's not where the major innovations have come from. It's been innovations in business models. Now is a time for firms to think about doing business differently, because the rules of the game have changed. So if you use the old business model, you're not nearly as likely to succeed coming out of this as if you begin questioning the fundamental business model, the way you do business, the offerings, how you code a market, et cetera, um, coming out of this this situation. 
Okay, well, I think, Gary, you just anticipated my next question because we unfortunately are going to run out of time, but I was going to say, what is that one piece of advice you'd offer executives? <laughs> I think, Gary, you gave I've already, it, but, I've already given that. but I want, I want uh, Pete and Bart to also have a chance to chime in here before we wrap up. What piece of advice do you offer business-to-business companies today? Well, I have to agree with Gary. I think it, it's, it's you have to experiment uh, under situations like this, whether it's with business models or other aspects of, of, of your operations. And unfortunately, that's the first thing to go. Uh, times are tough. Uh, we have too much at stake. We can't afford to experiment now. We can only do that when we have uh, uh, excess margins in demand. Uh, but I think it's as important as ever. Uh, you just have to be smarter about what experiments you run, how quickly you run them, how you read the results and act on them. I think it's, it's, it could be a great time for what we all like to call marketing science instead of the, the business as usual that, that tends to operate most industries today. I think another, another thing we need that companies need to do is they need – this places a much more greater emphasis on being strategic and thinking strategically. You have a limited amount of resources to invest, and you have to be very careful where you make those investments. Uh, it, it's sort of like the difference between cutting back across the board or – using a scalpel to cut out particular activities that are not you're not doing very well and investing in activities that you're doing well. I mean, it's not just you know bringing in new people, but it's also investing in the people that you have right now. So you want to, you know, maybe at this time even though it's going to be a little bit painful, maybe you want to do more training of people that are kind of not uh you know uh, uh fully engaged right now. So that, uh, you know, when you come out of this, you even have a better workforce than before. I guess I'll add one final thought uh, to pick up on some themes that have been here. I'd say certainly, I guess I would boil it down to say companies with very strong balance sheets, who have good, solid platforms, are going to have a real nice opportunity to do two things. Number one, acquire customers from weaker competitors. And number two, acquire people. Upgrade the talent of your workforce while others are in distress. Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing that play out in some of the financial industries, but I see it playing out in business-to-business and industrial industries. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time today. Really enjoyed being with you. Thanks to all our listeners. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.